from Barbenheimer to Blue Angels. We are live. It's going to be fun. Welcome to the Green Room for Disrupt TV. Uh, if you haven't watched any of these things, don't worry about it. Um, real quick, we're going to do introductions. And uh, of course, we go in reverse order and we talk about where you're coming in from. What are we going to talk about today? Mike, tell us where you're coming in from. Yeah, coming in from Bay Area. Uh, I am the CEO of a company called Crosscheck that we're going to talk about today, which is all around disrupting how we hire and ensure that we're setting up our talent for success in our companies. Very, very cool. One of the hottest issues, we've got a labor shortage and people are leaving. So how do we fix that? Awesome. Uh, Mika, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about? I am coming in from sunny Seattle, and I am the Chief Customer Engagement and Marketing Officer at F5. And Kara and I will be talking about uh, customer experiences and specifically uh, digital experiences. Very, very cool. Thank you. Carol, where are you coming from? Hi. Uh, also joining from Seattle, different part of the, the Seattle area. Still sunny it's here. Sunny Seattle. No, no, no. <laughs> it's still sunny. It's still sunny where she is. For this month. Wherever <laughs> they are in Seattle, right? And uh, Mika and I are really looking forward to the conversation. Very cool. Well, I'm here with my awesome co host, Liz Miller. And of course, not Bella Hopshire, hosting for Bala once again. Hashtag it, everyone. <laughs> not asking, but hosting. Hosting. Hosting for Bala. Amazing producer, L. So right. hey, let's kick it off. All right. Three. everybody. Welcome <laughs> to Disrupt TV. We're on episode number 331. I'm here with my amazing co-host, Liz Miller, Bala Afshar. Today. So welcome, everybody. And of course, we've got some amazing guests. This is the weekly show where we talk about what's happening in tech, what's going on in the world, some interesting speakers, authors, leadership folks. But more importantly, we talk about our amazing guests. And to kick off our guests, I'm going to introduce both of them, and then we'll jump into them and uh, give Liz the first question. So yes. we'll start with Kara. So Kara Sprice is Executive Vice President and Chief Product Officer of F5. She oversees the entire F5 portfolio of the multi-cloud application security and delivery solutions. And of course, she's joined, she's been here for uh, since 2017. And more importantly, she's got everything from app delivery to enterprise product ops. And of course, responsible for the big IP and NGINX product families. And of course, enterprise-wide product operations. So <laughs> thank you for joining. We're happy to Nothing have you. Nothing going on there, Karen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not busy at all. Yeah, she's not busy at all. So, and we also have Mika Yamamoto. She's ex executive vice president, chief customer engagement and marketing officer. And of course, she's been here and she's repositioned F5 from a hardware to a software SaaS company, which is not easy to do. And of course, more importantly, 
from a house of brands to a portfolio and a branded house to better serve and support F5 customers. We're building the digital experiences that we rely on. And more importantly, this is very, very cool. You were named one of the elite 18 in 2023 uh, by Influitive for customer-led marketing leadership. So thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for both of you being here from sunny Seattle, as you guys pointed out. And of course, <laughs> more importantly, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having You're us. You're welcome. Listen, when it's sunny in Seattle, you got to talk about it, right? Like that's like, that's, <laughs> it's like a requirement of living there. It's part it of It absolutely is. This whatever, is why we live right? here. You kind of forget I love it. once it gets sunny. I love it. Well, guys, I am so glad that I get to ask the first question because, uh, you know, not only a big fan of, of what you guys do and certainly of, of F5, but also a big fan of you guys. So I'm so glad you're here. Um, listen, I'm going to start with Mika because you and I go way back. So I get to torture you with like way back <laughs> questions. Isn't that fair? That's how we do this, right, Ray? Like that's how we do Disrupt TV. So we treat our fans very well. <laughs> right. It's all fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. So I, I'm super interested in the role that you now have at F5, right? Because I know you as not only just a chief marketing officer, but then you've also had like digital and you've been a president. You've, you have had this really amazing leadership career where you have really not just focused on kind of marketing as the function. You've really been driving growth for a lot of these organizations. So could you tell us a little about, you know, you're looking at everything from data and ML tools and, you know, how do we bring these up? But you're also really focused on the customer. So how has that translated into the role that you have now? Like what, what is the chief customer engagement and marketing officer? Like what, what, what do you do? Great question. It's a very good question. Um, well, you know, when I started at F5, what I wanted to focus on was not just a discipline, but but be able to focus on uh, but the customer experience across the entire company and felt that that was really important just as we transitioned from being a hardware and software on-prem company to one that delivers software as uh, software as a service, SaaS, uh, SaaS services. And so um, really, really wanted to focus on the digital experience. And, uh, and so the, the initial role that I took was customer experience and digital experience. And as I dove in, realized um, you know, for example, on our website, there was this contact me form and people would fill out their information. It would go into the ether and no one would contact our customers and they would wait and wait and wait. And they would, no. totally. they would call the hotel lobby and they would say, or not the hotel, sorry, they would call the lobby of our office building. And they were like, Hey, yeah. so I gave my information. I'd really like to get a hold of F5. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, we realized that we needed to connect our data on the back end. We needed to realize mm -hmm. that like if customers were actually trying to engage with us, we had to take that data and hand it to somebody to do something with it. And so that sprouted the and spawned the need for a data office. So we started in establishing and taking 70 plus databases and creating a data that was in one place and started cleaning that information because we realized when we put all the information together, we had five Microsofts. Turns out there's only one. Um, yeah, and so oddly, yeah. <laughs> turns out. Um, uh, and anyway, so we, uh, so that's how the data office was born essentially is came on to drive marketing, of course, to rebrand the company and drive digital demand for the company and then digital transformation at the company, mm. to, you know, to go us, help us to go from, you know, more manual processes to automated processes. Um, but in that you need, I mean, data is at the foundation of that. So that that's how the data, that's how the data came to be. And the customer right. experience part is, as we digitize, as we digitize, uh, you know, our customer experience, you realize there's, some friction that comes along the way if our processes aren't clean, if our data aren't clean, it isn't clean, sorry. So 
Um, it's really looking at you know, listening to the voice of our customer and saying and taking out those friction points across the company. You know, it makes a lot of sense, right? And as you make that transition into digital, right, you're also making a transition internally when you think yes. about what's important inside a company, mm -hmm. right? Kara, there's something you talk about, which is this era of app capital. And, and you know, and that's talking about that shift from physical capital, building structures, you know, to human capital, which we were talking about earlier in terms of our people, our knowledge, right? And of course, to what you're calling application capital. Talk a little bit more about what app capital is and what it means for businesses. Well, you kind of you you already hit the analogy right on the head, which is you know uh, since the dawn of the industrial revolution, there's been a really strong concept of of investments in all of these physical things like factories, railroads, all of yep. this you know really physical things that people would use to generate value. And you know we went through a period in the 1900s where people said, well, really the value is in the talent, and that was the era really of of human capital. And my belief and, and what we're pushing at F5 is that we are now in the era of application capital in which applications fundamentally are the drivers of value for not just the companies that are application centric, um, but for all companies and, and all geographies, all industries. Um, and just to give you some data points, if you look at the S&P 500, which is meant to map a large percent of the market capitalization of public US companies, it's like 80 plus percent of the market caps. Um, and you look at that today, 24% of the S&P 500 is what I would describe as digital leaders, application-centric organizations. And it's just a data point to show you how much of the economy is getting taken over by these companies that are just fundamentally about their applications. So think about uh, Microsoft with, with Azure and, and Microsoft's cloud offerings, uh, very application-centric. Meta is a very, very application-centric company. And Netflix, application-centric. Uber, application-centric. So those are the kinds of companies we're talking about. Well, it sounds like you got a new book ready to go. What are you, are you, are you planning something? <laughs> I'm working on, I'm just working on a blog right now. So I think there's, I think there's a big a thesis here. <laughs> I love it. I love we'll it. transcribe this. You'll have it in chat. <laughs> right. <now>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's easy. It's easy. Right. But that, I mean, that posture though has to fundamentally change how everything from how you go to market, mm -hmm. how you engage and like how you then start to look at companies. So we got interested, you know, F5, you know, certainly, you know, that physical, like, can I put something in, a, you know, physically in a place to secure the things, you know, like very oversimplification there. But as you've pivoted the company and changed what that portfolio looks like and changed the brand, but then also really leaned into this application-centric you know, environment and economy. How has that changed the go-to-market motion for you guys? A lot. Um, so if you think about where we were before, we could rely on a discrete product, right? And it was a deployable yeah. product that was no. tangible. It was an asset um, and uh, you know, it was hardware. And then we could have software that we deployed. Um, and there were human beings that essentially we would rely on to both sell and implement and support the uh, you know the experience and then enter this world of digital and it's not only you know it's an expectation of customers that they can engage with us digitally and so the web the website becomes really important as a place where people can gather information where people can get access to online self serve support um, and that can be uh, through articles that can be through chatbots um, and then you've got uh, you've got social media where people not only get information, but they actually have that as a way that they actually get support. So people will say, hey, does anyone out there know of this vulnerability or have this problem with X, Y, Z products? We've got to be able to scope and watch that. 
Um, yeah. And then you've got the instance of webinars, especially during COVID, where that was the only way that you could engage and interact and get information. Um, and so you've got this complexity of um, you've got this complexity of the engagement with the customer, where it's not just, "Hey, Liz, you just talked to X Y Z company. What happens? <laughs> What's going on?" And we could just have an email exchange. I mean, there's this. There's the human beings that still exist. There's our products that still exist, but there's this whole yeah. digital atmosphere where we're engaging with customers directly and actually in, in ways that we necessarily we don't necessarily see unless we're monitoring, you know, our web traffic and who's engaging with us. And so what's important for us is that we want to make sure we connect the dots so that we can. So, for example, when we're engaging with someone from a marketing standpoint, you know, if they attended a webinar, went to an event, they downloaded a white paper that when they get to meet with one of our account execs or a business development representative, that they've got that history, right? So that it's not yeah. just, you know, Liz Miller, I've never talked to you. I don't know, you know, what you're all about, where, you know, if we're having that call, you can actually look at all the ways that Mika has engaged with, with F5 so that you can say, hey, how did you like that white paper? Or what did you think of that right. webinar? And you can start to divine um, what a, what someone's going to be interested in. And it's not just a cold call and it's a friendly call. And so that's an instance of dots we need to connect so that we actually get in touch and understand, you know, the whole relationship with the customer, not, not the least of which also the, you know, what the ownership experience is like. We don't want to go in, right. you know, hot and heavy and go, Hey, Liz, how's it going? And be really excited about something <laughs> when actually they just had an outage a week ago. <laughs> high severity, you know, problems, with it. It, yeah. um, you know, that's totally tone deaf and makes us realize, you know, makes us seem like we absolutely don't know what's going on with the customer. And that's not how we want to show mm. up. Wow. And, and this is actually interesting, right? When you think about customer success, right? You, you've got mm -hmm. the go-to-market motions, right? That you're talking about, Mika. And then, Kara, what actually happens is, right? These go-to-market motions are really driven around apps, right? Yeah. Right. And how the right. apps are, you know, making you more loyal, more, yeah. You know, it's the stickiness of it. It's helping people like change the way they look at their company. So, so talk about these apps, right? Why, why you actually now need to double down on apps making a bigger differentiator uh, than, than the people behind the apps as well, so. Well, I mean, it's, it's really interesting and um, F5 is really a microcosm for what I think all of our, all of the customers that we serve are going through, right? Mika talked about, we, we started, um, you know, Mika and I joined close to, close to the same time, but, you know, six years ago when I joined F5, this was a company that sold around 90% of its product business was perpetual hardware. Uh, and the idea of the go-to-market motion around perpetual hardware is basically every three to five years, a seller shows up at the customer, they drop, you know, the physical thing in, in the place, or they insert it in the data center, they leave and they say, say bye, you know, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll be back to uh, refresh you in another three to five years. Um, and so very much uh, it oriented around just kind of uh, set it and forget it. Um, and as we have transformed the company over the last six years, right, we have more packaged software, we now have SaaS and managed services, but especially in the SaaS and managed services side, it's, you can't set it and forget it. Uh, to your point exactly, Ray, it's, it's heavily dependent on a land and expand type of uh, engagement model. And so your sellers have to behave differently. You have to think about a compensation structure that looks different, that, that looks at how does that account and how does that footprint grow over time? You have to have the customer success function that's engaged. Uh, and driving uh, active usage uh, and actual value uh, value extraction from from the technology because otherwise they won't renew. All of that is different. 
Um, and so that's been uh, a big part of what, what our journey has been. So I'm, I'm working more on, on the product side and making sure our portfolio um, can, can do what we want it to do, which is secure, deliver, and optimize any app, any API, anywhere. Uh, in the meantime, Mika, Mika and my, uh, the other counterparts we have in our executive team are working on transforming every other function across F5 to make sure that we can actually support that portfolio and support engaging with our customers in a way that is modern and, and digitally enabled. You know, this makes a lot of sense. And I'm going to throw it to Mika and then uh, then uh, we can swap it up. But the interesting point here is really that means the voice of the customer is going to be important, right? Like, how do you get the, you know, what the customers are thinking? Yeah. How do we get them in there? How do you figure out how to make it a lot easier for customers? So, so Mika, now you got that mandate on the app side. You can't just, was right. it, uh, sell it and forget it? Or was it, or what is it? That was Wrong pretty awesome. Wrong chicken machine. It's a set it and forget <laughs> it. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Someone, but everyone forgets someone had to go season the chicken before Ron in the infomercial put it in the machine. It drives me crazy. Anyway. So. Well, I mean, if we think of the voice of the customer, the customer is actually telling us lots of things, even if they're not intentionally, if it's not via survey. So we intentionally try to capture the voice of the customer through NPS surveys, for example, right? That's one way that we capture that we capture the voice of the customer. It's only noise unless we actually create a mm. signal out of it, meaning we actually take those insights and create meaning for, you know, meaning out of those insights and say, hey, this is the implication for the products team. If customers keep talking about how they love product quality, but they have a little problem with this, this element, or if they say, hey, I'm really sad about how long it takes to get support, unless we mm. actually create meaning for it, meaning around it, a signal, and then have the organizations that are accountable for, you know, for for either you know fanning the flames of great feedback or you know helping helping remove some friction for our customers, it is just noise. Um, and so a lot of it is taking taking what we get up and learn about our customer and creating some accountability to actually again remove the friction. Um, the other part is actually listening to customers tell us things. They tell you everything all the time without actually sending them a survey. So. Um, you know, we're, we're being a lot more diligent about capturing, capturing fee, you know, telemetry of our own products to say, look, if right. someone in earnest is using your product and they're logging in every day and they're using every feature and function and actually you're starting to see them peter out, right? They're stopping. They're no longer, you know, like maybe 20 users were using it. Now 10 users are using it only 20% of the time. Um, we can get into proactive mode where we start to see that decline. Before we actually see a customer say, you know, at renewal time frame, say, hey, time out, I'm, I'm really not seeing the value. There's signals that our customers are telling us all the time through their actions um, versus their, you know, versus actually directly filling out a survey again that we should be able to take. And we are taking so that we can see some signals um, of, of what a customer may, may need because they're actually showing us how they are aren't using our product. And so we can we can go from being reactive um, to finding out when someone has to call us, to being proactive by the use of data um, to be able to reach out to a customer. The same holds true if they're starting, if you've got someone who's actually really engaged with one of our, you know, one of our services, whether it's a web application firewall, and they're actually starting to sniff around on the website and starting to look at bot defense and saying, hey, they're, they're, <laughs> they're attending a webinar about bot defense. They're actually downloading information. We should actually look at that and connect the dots. Yeah. You have this one part of our service you're sniffing around for this other part of our service, or we actually may get third-party data that says actually they're sniffing around a competitor site and downloading competitor uh, competitor white papers about a competitive service. 
we've got to connect those dots and we've got to be able to proactively reach out to the customer and say, hey, did you know that in this console, you can actually access this, access this service? And it's really seamless because the service that you're enjoying is right next to the service you want to enjoy. And it's going to be really easy to deploy because you've bought all you can eat service from us. So you can actually just click on it and actually enable it. Um, but unless we actually listen to those signals, not just for a customer to directly tell us, but they're telling us through their actions, either positively or negatively, we've got to be able to connect those dots to be able to be, you know, again, proactive and anticipate what our customers need. And, yeah. and just to just to connect a few dots, right, if you if uh, Mika just listed, you know, at least 10 different applications that are required <laughs> in that entire in, in that she talked about listening that, to customers. Like and so that's what I mean. It's, it's a huge, uh, it's a yeah. microcosm of what we're seeing in our customer base, which is they're increasingly leveraging um, external and third-party apps. You know, Mika talked about apps uh, that are providing data uh, that give customer data points. There's apps that aggregate all of the data, including our telemetry. Uh, there's other apps that we need to do to then show and report on that data back into the people that need to use it. Um, those are some of the examples of the apps and APIs that are now powering every single organization. Yep. Um, and so it's a really, really, yeah. um, you know, like I said, this is this is what I meant when I said F5 is a little bit of a Petri dish for, for what our customers are going through. We have had to undertake massive levels of digital transformation, uh, yep. use as many apps as possible, write some of our own homegrown apps because there aren't ones that solve the problems that we need. Um, and, and that just means that the overall amount of apps and APIs that we are making use of is increasing dramatically. Yeah, and I, I think what's, what's so interesting about what you're both talking about is it, it really flows with this digital shift we're seeing yes. in businesses, right? Where when people, you know, we used to put the product at the center of the business and then we'd wrap all of our digital channels around it. <laughs> and we thought we were really sassy if we could like connect all the <laughs> data we around it. We're like, yeah, but then we were like, wait, we're missing all this really great <laughs> signal. Like there's a mm -hmm. whole lot of noise. And I think now that we're shifting mm -hmm. where our digital products are at the center, right? So really yeah. what you're both talking about is this really interesting shift. And so Kara, I, one of the things I see a lot of folks struggle with when we make this shift and when you start to talk about yourself as really being a digital business where your applications and your digital processes and your digital products sit at this, you know, that's mm -hmm. what is connecting regardless of what product you're selling, right? That's what's going on. How are you seeing, whether it's your customers or folks who are engaged, like really actively engaged in this era of app capital, what are some of the things that they are all doing? to really extract the most differentiation, most of value, like how are they killing it, right? <laughs> this is the question. Yeah, great, great question. So let, let me, I'm gonna talk about like what I see, I see several leaders doing and, and leaders in this era of app capital realize that uh, the value that they have is in a few areas. It's in differentiating in their core businesses. So offering competitive differentiation, uh, new and innovative customer experiences, but only in the areas where they are really meant for, uh, it's really around their specific value proposition and where they compete. Uh, like I'll, I'll give an example, uh, Nike competes in retail, athletic retail, and, and they've offered digital experiences that are all around how do you customize the appearance of that retail so that you can have hyper personalization, right? So that's, that's a great example of using uh, applications and digital technologies to really uh, extend their brand and really extend what they do. Um, so focusing focusing where they do their their digital work is an important piece. Uh, a second piece is in their operational operations. So how quickly are you able to iterate on those digital assets? Um, yep, you know, yep, yep. five years ago, most companies would tell you for me to 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 put new application logic out into production, 
it's multiple months for me to do that. Right. But if you think of the digital leaders today, like, uh, you know, take, take payments companies, they might be updating their production applications many, many times a day. Um, and so that difference in velocity is huge. Um, so those are, those are some of the practices of the true digital leaders. It's really the focus of where they put their digital efforts and on the innovation velocity that they're able to achieve in terms of updates to their applications. Um, if you look at the laggards, uh, you know, what oh, we're yeah. seeing, uh, you know, we, we've seen a number of companies over the last several years who, um, who recognized that, that being on-prem only was going to be uh, a, a competitive issue for them. Uh, you know, we all, we all recognize the benefits of, of taking advantage of like the elasticity in public cloud, the ability to take that out of your, out of your own network, et cetera. There's a whole bunch of benefits there. So many companies over the last several years have been on this like very um, focused march to get out of their data centers and get into public clouds. And there's also been a huge renaissance of developer um, freedom. And so developers have gotten to choose which public clouds they get to go use and which services. Uh, now, you know, if you pick up the pieces and you look around, what we find is that most organizations today are now managing apps and APIs um, that are spread out across on-prem data centers, um, you know, uh, co-location facilities. They're using yeah, an average yeah. of three different public clouds. Uh, you know, how, God knows how many SaaS uh, offerings they have in their portfolio. And now we have new things called Edge. Uh, and so it's a very, very <laughs> distributed and fractured landscape that they're trying to manage. And, and what they have not managed well is how do you standardize your operations across those different environments in a way that enables you to get that innovation velocity uh, and equally important enables you to be as secure as possible in delivering mm -hmm. those apps and APIs uh, to the to the digital experiences that they need to to consume. Yeah, you can't extract that digital experience and the delivery of customer experience yep. with security and making sure no. that there is that factor. They're, they're one hundred percent completely yeah. intertwined. You know, yeah. and, and this but is important, right? You, we're talking about all this digital transformation, but then on the other hand, what we're doing that in the back end, we're also trying to humanize the digital experience. Yes. Right? And, you know, when we think about that, right? I mean, Mika, like, how do we do this? How do we actually switch to this culture of performance? How do we switch to humanizing the approach, right? And in, in terms of how we get there, because not only it's an apps market and we're switching to an app capital market, uh, we still need human capital. So what does that mean to you and as well as Kara? Well, I mean, it's it has been a, you know, I think that one, it's really hard to be able to have to swap out your own technology and to, to implement digital, you know, digital tools and systems. I think it's even harder to actually retool and 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 think about how you're driving the the, the culture change that's necessary to take advantage of data, to take advantage of all these digital tools that you have. Because, you know, if you're used to dealing with a discrete product and then you're used to actually dealing face to face with people it's almost like object permanence with with people is that if i don't see it it doesn't happen because you're not used to this digital engagement happening right so you're not used to and not not realizing unless we surface the insights and the signal um, that someone is engaging with us online we see this this pattern of really when really big deals come through f5 and we're working on a massive deal it's usually dealing face to face with a couple humans we see dozens of people from those organizations actually engage with us digitally. And that sends us a massive signal if we listen to it. Um, and so part of that is surfacing the information. But the other part is being customer obsessed in a different way. 
And that's customer obsessed and curious about the whole customer relationship and looking end to end. And so it's being curious about how the customer might be engaging with us outside of a conversation we might be having. It's looking left to right to say what's happening in the conversation that just happened you know, digitally with another function and looking downstream and being interested in making sure we're enabling the next function once we sell something. Kara had said, you know, it's a product. We kind of drop the product at the door literally and then kind of say, okay, we'll see you when, when it's renewal time. Now we actually participate in making sure that customers are using the information. So it's actually, you know, partnering with other functions to make sure that when, when we sell something, we're handing off the right information to customer success so they know who to contact because the person who bought it isn't necessarily the person who's using it and that they that we pass along the information for why they bought it in the first place so again it's not a it's not a it's not a pickup you know it's not a standing start we're picking up and we understand why a customer bought it so that we can actually get them to to realize their value quickly and so that is a there's a human element to that to being you know curious to make sure we enable the next the next person who takes on the customer's you know the customer relationship make sure we're enabling the best way possible um, and that if it doesn't happen and you see something falling, falling to the floor, for example, someone can't get in touch, a customer can't get in touch with a support individual, that someone else in part of a different part of the organization realizes that's falling down and picks up the pieces, does the right thing and makes sure we do the right thing by the customer. And that requires yeah. us to think for the customer, not for our function, um, which is a very different mindset and a massive cultural shift in a company that's used to doing things um, by function and and in person and not digitally. Yeah. Wow, this is a massive Amazing. transformation, both mm -hmm. on product side, culture side, go to market <laughs> motions. We're here with Mika Yamamoto, Executive Vice President and Chief Customer Engagement and Marketing Officer at F5 and Kara Sprague, Executive VP and Chief Product Officer at F5 as well. Um, you can follow them both on Twitter at Mika Yamamoto one and of course, Sprague eight. So thank you so much for being here. Thank, Thank you so you. much for having us. It's great to see you. It's great to see you guys. Yes. Very, very cool. Wow. So this is a this is going to be super uh, interesting as we uh, look at what's happening. Massive transformation inside companies. Huge. It's going to change the way people work. You know, but more importantly, it means that how we bring on people is going to shift. So it's, it has to shift, right? That's part, <laughs> probably part of the problem. We're going to like I'm going to pick Mike's brain about this because everything that everything that Mika and Kara just talked about requires a whole new mindset and like a whole intentional shift in so, people, right? Amazing. Love it. Love it. Yes. But this is awesome. So, so we got Mike. Welcome, Mike. Hi, so, Mike. Hi there. <laughs> so Mike Fitzsimmons is the co-founder and CEO of Crosscheck, a HR tech SaaS platform focused on quality of hire. And of course, this is not your first rodeo. This is your fourth venture so having founded a number of companies, including Advanced TV Advertising uh, Company, Connect, Interactive Commerce Company, Delivery Agent. Um, and this is actually very interesting. You're the founding partner of a sports technology venture fund called Intersect Ventures, which you're doing some stuff for some, yeah, I hope you can tell us which NBA players and athletes. Uh, <laughs> but that was awesome. And of course, you've been on the Forbes Next Thousand list in 2021. Country's a fortune, great place to work, place. And of course, we see you on CNBC, CNN, Bloomberg. Sometimes I see you on the same show. You can follow him at Mike R. Fitz. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to chat. Hey, so Mike, here's the deal. We just have this conversation, right? You, you, you got to listen in 
as we're talking about changing cultures, getting signals from new places, picking up things if it gets dropped in another part of the organization, not looking at function. That sounds completely different than how we hire, right? Like we hire, we get the requisite, we put the resume up where we need to put it and then everyone has an algorithm go at it and then we try to game that. And then we just, like there's a whole lot of mess that happens. That does not seem to work very well because we've also got a talent short. Mike, we got some problems here, but you talk about the quality of hire and that sounds really important, but it also sounds like things that no one's talking about. So tell me what's going on, quality of hire. Why should we be looking at this? Yeah, for sure. And, and as I dive in, just to give you a little sense of my journey and Ray, you kind of called it out. This is, this is not my first rodeo in starting a tech company. It is my first one in the HR tech space. And I started the company with my co-founder out of pure frustration on just how damn hard it is to hire me, right? That's where this it's came from. It's really hard. It's really, really hard. It's just hard. And and you look at the fail rate, like you can't hide from the math that 45% of our hires in our companies never get ROI positive for the company that made the hire. And That's insane. It's insane. It's real. And it's terrible for talent. It's, it's, it's terrible for companies. It's terrible for everybody. And, and as you you know, as a disruptor coming into the, the space, we're able to say, why the heck is this? And, yeah, is and this? how do we do it different, right? And so that is, that leads to your question on what's foundational to cross-check and, and, and that, that we believe has been one of the missing pieces in the puzzle is this idea of outcomes. This idea, it seems so simplistic. We do it with every other line of business in our company. We don't do it with talent. We don't connect a hiring decision with an outcome. And subsequently, we never get smarter. And we have failed our talent acquisition leaders because we have given them KPIs and goals of fill butts and seats quickly, right? That's their core metrics, time to fill those types of things. We just haven't created a machine that enables us to make sure we're putting the right person in the right place, right, every single mm. time. And that's at the, at the core of it, though, to, to, to Liz, to your question about quality of hire, what is it? Well, it's finally connecting the dots between everything we knew when we made a hire and how did that actually turn out? Literally, how did that person, how long did they last? How did they perform? How did they impact culture? How engaged were they? You go down the list, but it's finally kind of, you know, taking taking that concept and, and, and breaking down that barrier between what has historically been, you know, a, a, a big wall between talent yeah. acquisition and the rest of the organization. Yeah. And one of the challenges here, right, is like, you know, you go, you're, in, you're finally in the space, right? You're looking at HR tech and you're like, hey, what, what's up with this, right? You've got core HCM, you got all this stuff scattered around and very little stuff is connected and interconnected. And it's just like a mess. It's like an integration nightmare from, from other places. Um, and so, so the question is like, you know, when you have talent acquisition and HR that are completely these siloed systems, um, not just in the software, but inside organizations, yeah. what do you do to fix that? I mean, is there a way to actually close that gap? It's the challenge, right? And, and I think just being really, uh, the, the, the world has not been kind to talent acquisition in the last two years as well, nope. right? We've seen everything we've seen. And so you, you lay that on top of it um, and, and just think about how dramatically their agendas have shifted. We were hiring like crazy two years ago and then all of a sudden, you know, the, it, goes to, it, goes, it goes through the floor for a lot of these tech companies and, and just expecting to be able to react that quickly is a challenging thing. But, but, but the... The answer to your question is it's about it's about data and driving impact. It, it really, truly is. And the magic that opens up once you start to connect these dots 
right? You just, you're like, how are we not doing this all along, right? And, mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll give you a, a, as we dive into cross-check specific, but just some industry stuff. I mean, we're spending billions of dollars a year on sourcing talent for our companies. I think Amazon spends a billion a year, right? Oh, yeah. Some number oh, yeah. like that. Nuts. They just made the decision to move that spend from TA to their marketing team because they're so good at performance-based marketing, but no one had been managing that billion-dollar spend with a with an outcome mindset. It just gives you us an indication of just how nascent this all is. And so that that's a an obvious to your point of like how do you start to show, you know, real value? Well, one area is help them source better instead of spending twenty million dollars on Indeed and not having any idea what that led to in terms of impact to your company, right? Just for, for starters, let's get our heads wrapped around, right? Um, you know, how we think about ROI and all these dollars we're investing in acquiring this talent. That's some simple stuff. Um, and we'll go down some other fascinating insights in the data you get out of this. But that's the point is you have to show that you can drive impact and you have to use yeah. data to show that you're driving impact. That's the, that's, that's how we start to get these, these two groups aligned on this. It, it, it feels okay. So my, like my head kind of hurts, Mike, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. Like you're talking about this, my head hurts because I'm having flashbacks of having to hire teams and going through that pain and like trying to define who you need to hire and the right talent. I mean, we did a study here at Constellation where I, like we asked like, Hey, who's part of the most important squad of delivery of customer experience. Right. And so we asked like marketers and sales and service. And they're like, Oh, we're all, we're all super connected. We're like, we're so great. And like, we're facing this big problem and we don't have enough talent. We don't have enough skills. And Oh my God, how does the CX team go forward? And my answer was, well, look at who isn't part of your squad. Like over 80% of you yeah. say that HR is missing in action. So like, if you have a talent problem, yet HR and talent acquisition is missing in action from what your goals are, it feels like there's this huge gap. So you're talking about this data, you're talking about all this feedback data that can lead to impact. Like what diagnostics are, are you seeing turn this problem into something that's truly actionable? Because I think yeah. a lot of these systems spit out a lot of data. And I think we all see it like, how many candidates, how many? That feels pointless now that you're talking to me, like I'm getting a little freaked out. So like, what is the data? What is that feedback yeah. that systems should be providing that actually helps close this gap and makes it measurable? Yeah. So Liz, I put it into two buckets. I kind of think about process level stuff, and then let's get into actually sort of talent matching stuff. But the first process level bucket, let's just, let's just talk about some data. Um, you know, I mentioned sourcing earlier and, and just this simplistic idea. If you're running a company, you're spending dollars on sourcing talent. At least now you can start to understand the ROI of the different places that you source talent from. We recently published a report on the fact that agencies are, are one of your most volatile sources and it's who we spend the most money with. Right. And you've heard the old cliche, probably that that a lot of our recruiting agencies are trying to send us B-level talent that interview well because they know they can place them again in 18 months, right? <laughs> like, well, our data says that's true, right? And and it, there's a lot in there. And so so there's, but, but so we'll go to another on the sourcing side. So we, we, we did an interesting study recently around internal referrals. And we found in a lot of companies who always lean on their internal referral program, it's a substantially lower quality of hire than some of your, than the mean in your company. And, and when you remove the financial incentive for internal referrals, the quality of hire goes way up. 
So wow. think about that. Who would have thought second. that? Who would have thought, thought that? Right. They're so they're referring uh, people they want to work with as opposed to getting the fifty dollars spit. Is what you're telling me? 50. Like that's that's what's happening, or like five hundred, whatever. Yeah, yeah. not even five hundred. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> you put another zero in there for a lot of these companies, but it's, but those, and that's not every that. company. But the point is, unless you're looking at these things with that lens, you can't you you can't even fix the program optimization side. Other things like that. So we do a lot of work around correlation of interviews within companies. So interview scores and how many people are interviewing. You know, you, you've probably seen too many points of view on, you know, don't go past this many number of interviewers. This is the number that is actually predictive. Well, one of the things that, that was astounding to us, only a 9% correlation between an interview score and the quality of that hire. And what we found is that something like 84% of interviewees are only doing three interviews a year. They don't have any idea how to interview or score a rate. So there's this thing. So to your point, again, how is that actionable? Well, it's, it's extremely actionable because now we can start to understand, you know, who's really not a great predictor of talent and, and success in our org. How do we develop them to get them better? Right. How do we adjust how many interviews yeah. we expect per candidate in these different job types? There's just a lot here that will seem just so dead obvious. You're like, well, how the heck were we not thinking about this or looking right. at this all along? Um, and I'll give you one other one that was horrifying. We did we we get a lot of assessment data from third party assessments, oh, yeah. right? So we look, and you have all probably had to take them along your journey, or and everyone has opinions about which ones are good and bad. And we found three of them, three of the eight that that we've spent a lot of time on, are, are not only not correlative to success, they're the exact opposite. They're actually recommending you to hire people who turn out to be lowest decile performers literally. And again, how is that actionable? Well, the company can save money by not having to spend it on this assessment, uh, you know, provider, the candidate is a better candidate experience, because now you don't have to put me through this test that actually <laughs> did not correlate to anything. Uh, so look, you can what? Everybody loves the Wonderlic personality test, like oh, the, the, that, that useless Wonderlic test. Large you venture, said it. I did not say it. <laughs> large, large, large firms that are private equity firms that love to give people their specialized tests trained for idiots, right? The test fairly certain for people I'm that... supposed to be like an egg delivery person or work at a funeral. <laughs> like, well, like that's my like that's my assessment. So I'm not quite sure how that correlates to like CMO or analyst. Like I like, like pick either path, and I'm not sure funeral home because i yeah. remember that I, that actually was on an assessment i took like way early in my career it was awful and yeah, i wonder if i'm not taking a shot at this i just want to clarify i'm not taking a shot at the assessment you're not taking a shot i am keep going but it is <laughs> yes. you gotta understand it you got to understand yeah. this stuff and ask these questions yeah no there's, there's a bit about that but hey you you actually guys put together a survey which was actually scary and in some research really <laughs> about candidate fraud and, and this Wait, is what? interesting. Now, I could see this like, you know, where my bot's interviewing your bot. And nobody knows who on the other end that, that's going on. But but the amount of fraud on, let's take like maybe LinkedIn. Wait, I, the amount of fraud that's going on in terms of what people have. Let's, let's talk about that. And what are you seeing? Because, you know, you said desperate times call for desperate actions. Who's being desperate? <laughs> yeah, no, Wait, I, I think there's I have two a fundamental question. There's candidate fraud? Like, I need to go back that far. Like... <laughs> Like, yeah, wait, what? No, that's a, you're missing out. You're missing out. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. I mean, look, I think there's two sides of it, too. I think it's harder to get jobs. And I know we're talking about unemployment rates and we're talking about there's major job opportunities in, you know, hospitality in the jobs, frankly, that people don't want. Like we know this and we can we can say that out loud because it's the truth. But in in, you know, especially in knowledge work workers, yeah. you're just seeing jobs are harder to get. So people are cheating. 
you know, and they're, they're either, and, and uh, LinkedIn is, as an example, you mentioned, there's no verification of LinkedIn and what you say on LinkedIn, no. right? It's light, you know, and even, even then it's not, it's not great, but we've just seen a substantial increase in the last three years, kind of like a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a meaningful increase. And one of the things in addition, I think, I think there's two issues with this. One is that, um, you know, that the, there's a direct correlation between people that do get into your company that turned out to not be totally truthful in the process, turn out to be much lower performers that we have that data in spades. The thing that's a bigger issue, frankly, and a, and a smaller, it, it's a, it, it's the insider threat piece. What yeah. was really concerning about our data was the fact that our most vulnerable kind of organizations, financial services, healthcare, education, we're having the most rapid increases. And, you know, those are the, that insider threat piece. I had my first meeting with a large, I won't mention who it is, financial institution where I had the head of talent acquisition and the head of cybersecurity at the meeting, right? Yeah. So think, yeah. think about that for a second. That's different. I've not seen that before, right? And it's because the insider threat, right? You get one bad apple in there and that's that's rampant right now. There's, there's bad actors trying to get into our companies to compromise, right? Uh, all kinds of things. So anyway, it's a concern. It's real, you know, and it's it's just going to get more more complex uh, over over time. So Mike, in the middle of the pandemic, it was very, very bad. Um, you could start to see the types of threats uh, people were getting. You could see where certain individuals were being compromised. Um, there were trails of this. Um, I think the companies that had this experience know exactly what I'm talking about. People were getting threat letters like, hey, your cousin in uh, Shanghai, you know, if you want to see him live, you need to do these five things, right? Yeah. Or, hey, you know, you've got this friend over here. We, well, we need your help, you know, or, or the U.S. is evil. We can come, you know, join the movement, right? All you need to do is do these three things and, you know, insert viruses into your, into your environment. I mean, these were all real. Right. These are all things that happened three years ago. That's um, real. So, and so you, you brought up the bots, too. And that I mean, you've seen a lot in our category. I don't want to take us off topic too much, but where they're talking about, hey, you can just use GPT for to create your job recommendations and all that kind of stuff. And, and guess what talent's doing? They're using the same app to match their resume great. to your job recommendations. So they beat the match. Give me your keywords. Give me your keywords. Give me your keywords. <laughs> Give me your keywords. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy reality. But so no, but it's, it's almost we, like we tried to over automate it though. Like it's like, that's again, like that's where my head kind of feels like it's splitting because I remember the before days. Remember, come on, Mike, Ray, we all remember the before days when you put out an ad, right. And you posted it somewhere. Like, let's just say it, Craigslist, let's just admit it where we were putting it Craigslist. And then you would like, you would hope you'd get like this flood of avalanche of resumes. And then you would, no one gamed a keyword. Everyone was like, what color paper can I put this on to try to make the big, like, it feels really different. I don't know, I Liz. Don't we were, like we were, how we're, bad it is. We were like making, it. we were making up fake resumes for Resumix just you to see what we get, like, what we get picked up. I was like, I we were like, we were like, oh yeah, thing. you know, Harvard MBA. Um, she was like a very, very like, you know, unusual city. Um, put these like five characteristics, speak seven languages. I'm, I'm and that person would always get a phone call. And then a normal person would never get a phone call. And we're like, hey, how, yeah. what's going on? I'm, I'm beginning <laughs> to feel like I got in the wrong line. And this is why I, when I would put, you know, when you submit your resume and you hit submit, like, you know, and I, is this why I work at Constellation is because I didn't lie in my resume. Like I'm beginning to feel like I should start <laughs> doubting myself all of a sudden. The reason I started oh, a company is because I, no, right. Uh, you, <laughs> but, like, like, okay. So like, I, I joke about that, but 
there's this there's this concern I kind of have, right? Because like I I if I think back on my own, like okay, I'm gonna go to these three companies and they all have the same resume yeah. vendor like, that they have on the back end. And if I'm talented, I'm you know like it's it's a problem on both ends because I think the expectation on both ends is I've got to game this to get to the right people, yes. right? Because yeah. there's this there's this thing in the middle that now have, we've put in all of these artificial keywords, we've put in all of these artificial expectations because there's this idea that we can weed through the bad if we put all this in here. So now everyone's gaming it on both sides of the system. We're getting this telemetry data saying that we're kind of wasting our time on all of it. What's the answer? Like what, because I, I kind of feel like for, for my frustrated peeps out there that are watching, we kind of need an answer, right? Like, like how do we get around this? Is this like, okay, everything goes to skills-based, here's your test, like here's your... You know, like, yeah. here's, here's your test. If you do it, then you that's your first level. Like, what what's the answer to all of this? Or well, is it's, it? it's not a silver bullet, one. And I, and I think there's a, you know, we, we like to tell our clients it's progress versus perfection. Like, you got to get out of the gate here. And, and the progress start is let's just connect our hiring with outcome data and be able to start to analyze what's working and what's not in, in really simplistic terms, right? Mm. It is. And so if you start doing that, right, you can get the foundation to understand where we're winning, where we're not winning, where the pockets of opportunity are and where that just might not be solvable. That said, that'll lead to the second piece. You know, I mentioned earlier, we kind of put it in two buckets of sort of program optimization, then talent selection and talent matching. That gets into the skills and competency piece. Right. I, I do think we're heading more in that direction for sure. And, and one of the things that's been really interesting to us is this conversation has been hot for, for a minute, right, around skills and competencies. And we're trying to all get to this, this nirvana. But the challenge has been on this that many companies sort of establish a skills and competency model that's not based in outcomes. Nope. They haven't done the first piece. Nope. So they <laughs> some set of skills that they infer are going to lead to success. And that's where we come in. And again, by having outcomes, we can actually tell the company, these are the skills and competencies that actually are predictive to being successful in this company, right? Mm -hmm. like, like we can get closer to that world. And that's where I think, you know, again, you, you have to start connecting these pieces in order to push the whole machine forward. It's also for talent, like putting talent in the wrong role, like it just, you know, it sucks for everybody. We all know that, right? We've all... Yeah. You know, when you, when you, you know, it's, it's not fair and we got to get it right. So I do think this is a key part of it, though, is just progress versus perfection. But this idea of connecting to outcomes and continually learning like real time, our jobs change quickly, our companies change quickly, products change quickly, the market, for God's sake, changes quickly. So if you don't have a learning model behind the scenes, right, you're just you're just dead on arrival. Right. You're just no, not really. Gonna I really love that. And, and And I think that you guys have thought about this from not just the way you look at it from the hiring team, the way you look at cross-referencing folks and looking at the reference checks uh, to looking at anything from, you know, what's going from the ATS, right? The analytics that are there, right? I mean, and really, really trying to understand how it all goes in terms of a holistic view of, of where talent is and where the talent's going to be. So, um, yeah. yeah, so, but yeah, um, yeah. So, hey, this is very, very interesting. I, I think this is going to, this is a very, very interesting position in terms of helping folks think about, you know, relooking their talent and where it's supposed to go. Yeah. Uh, I love getting so, some yeah, data more. behind it because it always yeah. feels like it's really squishy. Like I don't like that's I honestly when I was hiring teams, probably the thing that I disliked the most 
was that like you would get HR, you would get talent come in and they'd be like, well, you know, here, they're in the first quartile of like, you see all these charts yeah. and graphs of like where this person is, but the data is rarely about the person or about the outcome. Like it's, it's just right. always about like this weird stuff in the middle. And I, so I like that you're actually stripping all of that away. That sounds great. Yeah. And all I, I, I really want to do is I want to put a programmatic model here. So we're let the uh, job no, boards no, and the candidates no, come together. No, oh, no, no. Hey, no it's programmatic job recruiting. Programmatic like job recruiting is where we're no, headed. So. No, no. One no, other piece for I'm you all, just before we, before we get off. So, so one of the things that we're doing that I think is really cool. And you mentioned the NBA players one of our investors is actually a gentleman named clay thompson from the warriors and just just to give you a sense of, of some other cool stuff that cross checks into we're trying to put our technology to good work to also help sort of those disadvantaged get back to work and we launched a program with clay yes. thompson he was injured he had back-to-back -back acl injuries he was out oh, for 941 yeah. days came back and they won the championship so we launched a program with clay called project 941 where we actually go out and help disadvantaged we try to put 941 people back to work each year Right. And these are yes. ex incarcerated. These are ex vets. These are moms returning to work. You, you name it. And so there is some really cool stuff here that just if you think about the big picture and, and how we can all impact change. Right. In, in addition to your potentially programmatic uh, <laughs> programmatic talent okay. selection. But there really is good stuff here to be done. Right. And there's ways to kind of level the playing field. There's ways to use this data lean more to skills and competencies, reduce bias, right? Get, get get more, you know, diverse candidates into our into our companies and that sort of thing. So I just wanted to give that give that quick shout out so you guys know where we're Wait, kind so of how many, did you did you hit the 941 goal? Hit 941, you know, like and then at the yes. playoffs this year we got uh we we had the gentleman actually at halftime get honored at the Warriors game nice. uh, during the second round of the playoffs. It was really, really cool. So that's so, so awesome. I love it. We're gonna that. try and double it this year. Right. We're going to try and, you know, do our thing, but it's, it's, it's a really cool one. Well, we but that's so great. So you're giving that advice to the candidate as well. Correct. Yeah. Oh, so cool. Love it. Well, we're here with Mike Fitzsimmons, co-founder and CEO of Crosscheck. So thank you so much for being here. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike R. Fitz. And thank you so much for being on the show. Happy Friday. Thanks. Oh, thanks, Mike. Wow. Mind blown. Yes. That was a lot. I'm feeling, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm still a little upset about this whole everyone's gaming their resume on LinkedIn thing because I get freaked out. I'm just assuming everyone, like if I put a lie on there, I would just assume everyone's like. Everyone's going to call you out, like, I hope. Right, because maybe it's because I'm a marketer and everyone assumes that I'm lying anyway. Like, I, like I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> my background's marketing and PR. So pretty much everyone just assumes like, well, Liz must be lying. So if that's the baseline and I lie on my resume, I'm not, but I, yeah, I just, oh, that was, that's a lot. But <laughs> well, this is I why, this is why also, I've been advocating for LinkedIn to do a verification system, right? No, I mean, maybe they easily could just do, pay for a here's the college you went to. Check next to it. Did we want to do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. no. <laughs> here's the college you went to. These are the years you went. Here's the work that you had. We can verify at least employment was there, right? And, you know, people would be easily. Yeah would do that there's 900 million active users on linkedin 300 million would pay 10 bucks a shot 300 million would pay 100 dollars a year that's 33 billion dollars sitting right in front of linkedin but here's the thing. developers like, and a sales and bd people i could come up with 33 billion in revenue for them and they're sitting on their butts doing nothing that's yeah, what, but what happens me. when someone then says oh yeah like so in the verification like oh i went to harvard and, you know, so we all know the people, we all know the people that do this, right? I went to Harvard, I went to Harvard. And what they really did was like, they went to the coop and bought a t-shirt. And then later in life, they went and took an online class. 
ergo they went to harvard like i get it like i get the fuzzy logic around it but like how no but the registrar would say you had a continuing education class you didn't really go right oh, you were there busted. for an undergrad oh, they get busted all these folks would get busted but you know what i pay 10 bucks to say i really went to johns hopkins you know like i mean I, <laughs> hey why not you know <laughs> It's $33 billion in TAM. They're if missing. I paid $10 to, to have people confirm that I went to Mount Holyoke College, I would also need to pay an extra $10 to have that little pop-up then come up and be like, and to explain to you what Mount Holyoke College is, is no, it's not Mount St. Mary's <laughs> to everyone who was in the Bay Area. It's the oldest women's college in America, people. Emily Dickinson went there. <laughs> like, there would have to be a pop-up that came after it. So I'd be like, I'd be at like $50 for all the things that I would have to pay for to explain my career. Like, yes. She started in sports and then she went no, into no, no. CRM. Mount, Mount, Mount Holyoke will then pay into... for that. Mount Holyoke might. For that. Nah, I don't know. They'd probably be they like, might. you haven't paid your alumni dues. We're not paying anything <laughs> for you. We're not, well, no, we're not helping you out. Well, anyways, next Right, week. what's up? Listen, I'm not going to be here next week because Vala only allows me to host for Vala like every once in a while. Like it gets too crazy and intense. <laughs> Y'all don't let me come back. And then, you know, it's, it's whatever, but Vala will be back. You'll what's come going back. on You time? come back when it's important, like, like this show. So. Like this show, when I get to catch up with Mika, oh my god, I haven't talked to her forever. I, mean, I know awesome? she give her a call. Well, hey, episode three thirty-two, we've got Richie Atwari, co-founder and CEO of Mobius. We've got Rajesh Vashis, he's the CEO of Shri Time, and Dr. Leroy Hood, author of The Age of Scientific Wellness. This is gonna be interesting here. I'm so. I'm sorry. Did you just did you just tell me that you were gonna have the man who started hashtag asking for Vala yes. on? with vala next week well you can come I'll as a there. special guest <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna be i'll be on linkedin like going crazy asking for vala that's gonna be me everybody <laughs> tune in just do it hey if it's friday it's disrupt tv every friday 11 a.m pacific 2 p.m eastern thanks a lot for being here and see you all later folks <laughs>